Do you travel often, perhaps to foreign places where you do not speak the language? Well, this week's giveaway is for you. Thanks to our partner, Beta, this week we will be giving away three Pocket Talk voice translators. The Pocket Talk makes communicating with someone that speaks a different language super easy and enjoyable. It supports up to 74 languages and uses built-in mobile data to provide two-way foreign language translations in real time. Enter this week's giveaway for a chance to win a free Pocket Talk voice translator by going to www.mission.org giveaway or try it out at your nearby beta store. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Stephanie is joined by Ruben Harris, CEO of Career Karma a community of peers, mentors, and coaches that helps to match people to job training programs, starting with coding boot camps. On today's episode, Stephanie and Ruben discuss the job market today, how people can break into the tech industry even if they have had no prior experience or connection, and the characteristics needed to make it in the new economy. Welcome back to another episode of Mission Daily. Today we have Ruben Harris, CEO of Career Karma. Ruben, how's it going? I am happy to be here. Yeah. Happy Friday. I still just can't get over your good radio voice. <laughs> it's great. And you have your own podcast, right? I do have my own podcast. It's, it's with, run with my co-founders, Archer and Team It's called Breaking Into Startups. And we launched it in 2016. Cool. How many episodes are out? About 113. I think we're going to drop our newest one next week. Um, but yeah, so we try to have at least once a month. We used to do them like two to three times a week, but we just launched a YouTube channel uh, for Career Karma. And so- A lot uh, of work. Yes, a lot of work. So we're working on the cadence, but um, we try to keep featuring stories of people that are broken to tech from non-traditional backgrounds. Very cool. Is it interview style or narrative or what's it look like? It's interview style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially we realized that most media covers CEOs and venture capitalists, but not the workers that are actually building the company. Um, and so we started featuring people from all walks of life, whether they are older, younger, uh, mother, father, formerly incarcerated, veteran. Um, and we started putting them on the cover of TechCrunch and different magazines that people read. Um, and so, and it's been going very well. That's awesome. And who's been your favorite guest so far? All of the episodes are my favorites. They're all equally <laughs> but great. I, I would say like the fact that my brother actually went through a coding boot camp and became a software engineer, episode 100. That was his goal to do that. I think that's a really good one. Ooh, um, I good. really like the one about um, uh, Hasib Qureshi as well, who's a, a poker player that really talks about um, how he got this $250,000 job, mm-hmm. but how he figured out what was working well and what wasn't working well and how to negotiate and how to practice and like had a really methodical approach. Mm-hmm. And so our podcasts are really designed to be tactical yeah. and not just inspirational. So if you want to take action, you can. So that's a good segue then into what you're doing today at Career Karma. So you're yeah. CEO. Yeah. What is Career Karma and what does your day-to-day look like there? Yeah. So a career karma is a marketplace that matches people to job training programs, starting with coding boot camps. So on one side of the marketplace, we have people that want to become software engineers through mm-hmm. coding boot camps. And so we put them through a three-week preparation process called the 21-Day CK Challenge. And if you go to Twitter, you can see thousands of people tweeting about it online on a day-to-day basis. And on the other side of the marketplace, there are there's software that we've built for schools mm-hmm. so that they can manage um, the people that are applying to them and understand what they need as they're going through the steps. My day-to-day uh, time 
uh, historically was focused purely on one side of the marketplace, which was the individuals when we were at uh, Y Combinator, Mm -hmm. uh, making sure that we understood not just the technical things that they need, but also their uh, day-to-day life things that they need, the psychological aspects that they need so we can productize those features. Um, And today it's a combination of that, but also spending time speaking with the schools Mm -hmm. to understand what's working well, what's not working well, um, so that we can uh, provide them with the support to know what their funnels look like in real time and also what they need to retain people and to help them find jobs. Got it. And what led you to Career Karma? Why were you excited about this? Um, was that like your first idea when going into Y Combinator or did you pivot a bit when you were in there? What did that process look like? I mean, something that we talk a lot about is that there's a difference between a job, a career and a calling. Um, and so me and my co-founders, we did an um, plan on starting this company when we met each other six or seven years ago in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we are friends mm-hmm. and we continue to be friends. We call ourselves fraternal triplets <laughs> um, because they are twin brothers. And, oh, um, that's great. I'm not white. <laughs> and so like, but, awesome. but we're very, very close. Yep. And so when we met, we knew that we wanted to do something in tech, but we needed to get skills first. Over a period of the time that we've known each other, we worked across education, healthcare, politics, finance, augmented reality. We would share our, and, and actually the auto trader industry. So the auto industry, because Timor used to work at, um, my, my co-founder's Archer and Timor, he used to work as a scrum master at auto trader. During this time period, we just, would just tell our stories. We just wrote blogs and would organize events. And people kept sending us emails asking how to get jobs and how to be like what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And so we were used to people rejecting our messages whenever we would try to ask for an intro or for guidance to try to get a job. And so we told ourselves we would always help people if they want to get a job. And so after helping hundreds of people get jobs and answering the same questions over and over again during coffee shops, we said, why don't we just record a podcast so people can have the answers yep. um, and start writing content so people can have the answers, start making YouTube videos so people could find the answers. Then we created actually a chat bot that would point people to the teaching programs for the jobs that they want when they listen to our podcast. And what we realized is that even though that helped hundreds of people get jobs, most barriers in life are actually psychological, not technical. And most people don't just have the natural discipline that they need. And they need a support system, a motivational system that we weren't going to provide purely ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's when we started thinking about how do we create a product that prepares workers for the fourth industrial revolution? How do we make sure that no matter what new job exists in the future, they know the jobs that exist. They know where to go to get the skills. They know people that are currently uh, getting the skills and have the skills Mm -hmm. and that they know what's necessary in order to be successful in that career path. How do you stay ahead of, you know, the industry, the trends, things like that, and show people where things are headed? Because, you know, a lot of people I feel like are still getting degrees in Mm -hmm. things where I'm like, what kind of job are you yeah. going to get with that degree? Have you thought about this? Have you thought yeah. about how much you know student loans you're taking on for a career that's maybe forty thousand dollars a year in yeah. salary? Yeah. Like, how do you stay ahead of that and help guide people, you know, in maybe a data driven way? Focus is the answer to that question. I think, like, rather than uh, becoming the the platform that supports every single skill set that currently exists today, we decided to focus on software engineering mm-hmm. first. And the reason why is because people keep referring to the tech industry as uh, separate from everything else, mm-hmm. but tech industry is no longer an industry anymore. It's everything. If you're not tech driven, you're either going to uh, die or survive for a few years and, and adapt to the next thing and, and become tech driven. And so if everything's tech driven in the future, no matter what industry it is, then the universal language is code. 
even if you're not a software engineer, you got to learn how to work with people that know how to code. And so if you look at our education system, which is required in order to any and in, in the world, if you want to prepare workers for the future, you got to have some kind of training for them. There's a shortage of computer science graduates. There's about 50,000 people a year mm-hmm. and only about 30 to 40,000 people graduating from coding boot camps a year and over half a million open jobs now and 1.4 million open jobs in the next five years. And in the next five years, there's only going to be 400,000 people graduating from college. And so like over a million people got to get jobs from some form of alternative. And Mm -hmm. so rather than go crazy with everything else, we're like, all right, coding isn't easy, but it's not rocket science. Like if we can crack helping anybody from any walk of life become a software engineer by working with training programs and all the other things that you need in a career transition to level them up, then we can expand to any other skill set. And the reason there's a reason why we're not called Code Karma um, is because we plan on expanding to other skill sets when we perfect it for software engineering. And is there, I mean, a lot of times there's a financial barrier when it mm-hmm. comes to, you know, taking on even a coding boot camp, college, of course, any of that. Do you all help with that or have plans on helping students get in there and figuring out a way to kind of you know, incentivize it for them in a better way than maybe what's happening today with just normal student loans? I think this is a good question. So in our mind, boot camps are the fastest way to get a high paying job uh, in tech yes. without a degree. Uh, usually they're three to 12 months, sometimes 18 months if you're doing something part time. They're powered primarily by something called an income share agreement. And what an income share agreement is, is a promise. It says, I promise that I'm going to get you a job above a certain salary. If you don't get a job, you don't have to pay a dime. If you do get a job, then the tuition comes out a percentage of your new salary. Such good incentives. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like perfectly aligned. And so essentially, like when you think about that, um, we spend a lot of time uh, working with individuals to help them uh, be aware of the programs that stand by that, even if they don't have an income share agreement. So mm-hmm. some boot camps will stand by their product and say, look, even if you pay tuition up front and you don't find a job, we'll give you your money back in six months, All right. So like these money back guarantees, like super uh, aligned with you actually having outcomes, some kind of shared risk yeah. on both sides. There are some schools that offer um, scholarships. There are some schools that offer living stipends. There are some schools that offer you a check while you learn. Um, and as you can see, as I'm rattling all these different yeah. things, it's very easy for someone to get confused when they're trying to find a program yeah. that's best for them. So many options. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then like, even when you find a program, you have to pass the entrance exams. They're mm-hmm. not accepting everybody. Um, you could think about going to a boot camp, like moving to a new country, because that's the best way to learn a language, because this is a new language. But before you move to a new country, you probably want to learn a little bit about the culture and and the basics, like how to say hi, bye, where's the restroom, or hello world. Right. Yeah. So the three-week, 21-day CK challenge is that preparation process that teaches you the culture and the basics and the mindsets and introduces you to other people that are like that uh, so that you can be aware of how you can uh, pursue one of these options without having to have the financial pressure. That's so great. I don't think I've heard of that before of kind of like, don't come in yet, mm-hmm. try it out, see if you like it, get the mm-hmm. feel of it, and then come in when you're ready. I don't think I've heard of that before Yeah, there's this. nobody in the world that's like does attracting and pre-training better than us. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to stop there, but that's where we're starting mm-hmm. to really get that right. Because not just with boot camps, but even colleges, there's all kinds of scandals and issues with admissions, mm-hmm. right? And like people don't know uh, whether someone is true or not. Like people don't know whether they're going to get the outcome or not. And yeah. so like, that's why we started with the attracting and pre-training first. And to your point, let's say that someone does try to get into a school and they get rejected. Does that mean that they're 
they don't want to become a software engineer, a lot of times that could psychologically prevent someone for fully reaching their potential. Mm -hmm. And we will always be there and help you try again. And if that school doesn't let you try again, we'll send you to another school that will let you try again. And Mm so we're always going to be there. Our goal is to help a billion people in 10 years or less. Um, And so, yeah. Yeah. One thing we talked about before we hopped on the mic was helping people with non-traditional backgrounds, which I loved. Can you go into a bit more detail how you help people who you know, maybe aren't set up for success when they come back into the civilian world, whether, you know, it's someone coming home from, you know, like a veteran or someone who had a criminal history and now they're back out in the world. How do you think about helping those people? What do you do differently with them? What does that look like? So like the majority of those people are doing the, um, the income share agreement thing that I was telling you about before. I don't know if people have been able to check this out, but on our blog, we have over 500 things that we've posted. We just dropped something by our researcher named James Gallagher. It's the state of the ISA market research reports, the most comprehensive research report of all time that really explains that there's going to be over 500 million um, income share agreements originated by 2020. Um, There's currently 40 colleges and boot camps that are currently offering these things. Um, And so what we do is like point these individuals to that. But during the three-week process, it's very important for us to understand what their goals and what their needs are outside of finances. Mm -hmm. So that might be a laptop. It might be finding a program that is, gives them a chance to prove that they have discipline, even though they have bad credit. It might be housing, all kinds of things like that. And so I think um, when you're thinking about education and transitions, there's a lot of amazing nonprofits, a lot of amazing individual philanthropists, a lot of amazing companies that believe that, you know, we make it free for people problem solved. We cancel the loans, problem solved. Yeah. So and easy, easy fix. <laughs> I, know, I think the heart is in the right place. Yeah. However, we've seen that even if you make something free and you put someone in a program, uh, for example, let's say it's a part-time online coding bootcamp, because I would argue the majority of people are doing these part-time online coding bootcamps because you can do them part-time, self-paced, full-time or in person mm-hmm. and, and, and online. If I'm in a part-time coding bootcamp, but I'm also working a job like a Uber or Lyft or retail or something or multiple jobs that are actually what I need to put food on the table that causes me to drop out, then like, it's not that I don't want to become a software engineer, that I'm not disciplined. Like, I just need that type of a job. And there's some bootcamps that we work with that will um, offer you a job so you can earn a check while you learn. We do that as well in some instances where if people... Um, have demonstrated strong commitment to the community. They can work with us or they could earn a check while they learn as Mm -hmm. well. That's cool. And essentially that's how we're thinking about it currently. There are some workforce development boards that have started reaching out to us to start thinking about like, what are other things that they could provide? Um, And I would say the, the only other thing that I think is super important for people that finish the bootcamps and start getting into the job search that come from a non-social background is understanding the language of the tech world, Mm -hmm. how to translate their historical skills. Because a lot of times in the process of reinvention, they forget who they are. So like if I've been a seasoned sushi chef, like I could be a seasoned sushi chef that happens to learn how to code, not a junior developer, right? There's all these people that are coming up with like replacements for shrimp or replacements or genetically modified foods or disrupting the construction industry. So like never forget what your roots are as you're going through this process, because it's a matter of selling yourself when you get to the job search. And I'll say the biggest issue that people from a non-traditional background have 
after they get the skills and emphasis on getting the skills and knowing the language Mm -hmm. is knowing how to sell themselves to get the shot. Yeah, that definitely seems like the hardest part. So is there a lot of data work that goes in the back end um, for your team to figure out who gets what opportunities? Because it, you know, it sounds nice. Everyone should get all these great opportunities, but I mean, I'm sure there's some people that should probably be bet on more heavily than others. Maybe do Mm -hmm. you guys um, have a lot of like, you know, like a big data analytics team who's looking at how to give these opportunities and spread them around and who gets what, or how do you think yeah. about that? Um, yeah. Yeah. We have an app um, has over 30,000 people in it since we've launched in January we get about like 200 people that download the app every single day. And essentially it looks kind of like Duolingo with the, with the learn tab mm-hmm. where that three week process is broken down day by day. It's inherently built to where if you drop out, then like we know that you're not as serious or not. And if, or life is going on and like, we will check in on you and we'll have reminders to see what's going on, whether it's through text or email or phone, just to see how you're doing, because mm-hmm. we want to make sure that you aren't doubting yourself and just an introvert and staying quiet, yeah. uh, which happens a lot. If you are serious, you're going to move through, through the process. And so whenever people are dropping off or staying on board, we can see who can get more resources or not. Mm-hmm. If we see you leading squad uh, meetings in your area, uh, we can see that if yeah. we like all the messages that are being sent and there's there's millions of messages being sent through our app now mm-hmm. um so that's awesome yeah sounds like some good indicators to know who's really in it and who's kind of just like floating yeah. on the sidelines <laughs> yeah and since when you always say like we haven't figured out the perfect data analytics because we just finished yc this year how was it going through yc yc was good yeah it was really good yeah so i mean we were the one to 2019 batch i think going back to the focus thing it really kept us focused on the user and making sure that we had a hundred people that love us versus a million people that kind of like us doing things that don't scale. And what started off as a hundred people trying to love us turned into a hundred people downloading the app every day. Mm-hmm. Mothers telling their fathers, uh, you know, and sisters uh, telling their brothers, uh, people telling their friends and, and people taking control of their career and changing the very fabric of their family. Yeah. And like, our North Star is helping people make their most important career decisions. And the first decision that we're helping them make is which coding bootcamp is best for them. And we can set, sit here and talk about all kinds of debates about what's going to happen in the future, like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. But what's not going to change over the next five years is people wanting to know what jobs exist, where to go to get the training for those jobs, and to connect with people that can guide them during that process. Yep. And yeah. so we're always going to be laser focused on that. So if boot camps today are what's training people, great. If it's something else tomorrow, we can always point them to whatever the next thing is. And we believe that in order to prepare for the workers for the fourth industrial revolution, it requires you to work collaboratively. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be one school that trains the entire world. Just like there's not going to be one hospital that trains the entire world. Yep. There's going to be some some schools that can be specialists at certain subjects or certain formats or certain whatever. And so we always want to point people to the best things for them. Yeah. One theme I'm kind of hearing throughout this, too, is that mindset is a big piece. So like no matter what, like you said, is coming in the future, if you have a mindset that can adapt and be flexible and kind of just like move around to the next thing and figure it out and Uh, develop that community around you, you're going to be good no matter what, Mm -hmm. which sounds like what you guys are focusing on, you know, within the chat rooms and Mm -hmm. people getting to talk to each other and supporting them. Like it might be focused on coding right now, but you can pivot anyway. And you've got this core group of people who know how to be flexible, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, like to your point, like going back to how we started the company and how it's a calling force, it's not like we were like, oh, let's create this company. It's going to make us rich. Like literally, we're just literally building the product that 
is productizing what we were able to do to get jobs and like what we were able to figure out about the workforce and this never ending the bait that happens to be workforce development is essentially the economic issue of our time. Right. And so we stumbled upon the fact that we've been able to crack that. And so like during this process, I've worked in the entertainment industry. I worked as a musician. I worked as an investment banker. I worked in sales. I worked in education. I worked in politics. I worked in healthcare. And I haven't been working for a decade. Yeah. Right. I graduated in 2010. You've seen the world. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, like if you think about that, like the average tenor in tech is one to three years. Mm -hmm. We've entered the end of occupational identity and into the world of lifelong learning, where you're going to go to multiple companies, multiple jobs, multiple schools in a lifetime. And that is totally okay. You could be an engineer for three years. You could be a doctor for three years. You could be a lawyer for three years. And if people are living longer, that's fine. You know? It's kind of like breaking the, I mean, I call it the parents mindset. I mean, maybe my parents weren't as much like this, but you know, eh, actually they kind of were sometimes like you go, you get a good career. Does it have a pension? Like you mm-hmm, got to stay there a long mm-hmm. time. Oh my gosh, Stephanie, you're leaving mm-hmm. Fannie Mae after three years. You're leaving Google mm-hmm. after four years. Like why would you ever leave a good spot? Mm-hmm. And I think it's really getting past that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's like a society thing when you have everyone around you telling you, if you find something good, why would you leave it? And yeah. I heard so many people telling me that when I'm like, oh yeah, I'm joining mission full time. Yeah. They're like, you can't leave Google. Yeah. You just can't do that. I'm like, <laughs> you can always go back. You can always, exactly. like you have so many choices in life. And yeah. yeah, I just think we've been pressured for so long by so many people of like, you just can't jump around. It's not a good look, which yeah. actually it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's not, for us, it's not necessarily a college bashing session or like you can't pick something that you stay in forever. Just know that what's constant in this world has changed. Like we graduated from college. Me and my co-founders graduated from college. But like, if you're going to go to college, pick the major mm-hmm. that's going to get you the outcome so that yep. you can sustain the cost of what you paid for, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or go to a college that is aligned because some colleges do offer income share agreements and things like that or money back guarantees. I don't think they do the money back guarantee thing. Yeah. But like, think about it. Yep. And yeah. So, That's something yeah. that Chad and I focused on way before mission. We uh, created an app called College Majors and it was when we were in college. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's still, I mean, we took it out of the app store, but because mm-hmm. you have to like keep updating like the BLS data mm-hmm. and blah, 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 blah. A lot of work, but uh, it showed you if you get this certain major, what career can you get? What's the like salary potential? What's the That's growth awesome. rate? It just pulled in all of the public data sources that yep. you know you really can't access yep. normally, and put it all into one app. Put some nice pictures, like a nice you know UI yeah. on it. Yeah. And one of these days, I'm like, it's still relevant. Oh, we did super that. Relevant. When did we do that? 2013. That's awesome. I, think. I like that. Yeah, I'm like we college need college majors. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. Yeah, it's, it's not uh, there anymore. It, right? It's not there, but I still have it. Um, like we still have it on my yeah. phone. Yeah, you know, available to license if you guys need it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I <laughs> no, it's love great to though. That. I think, I think, I think, like to your point, just like not just the boot camp that gives you the right training. Like, if I'm coming from not, let's say I'm a woman or I'm black, and I like went to a boot camp and I get an offer from a company, I can know if that offer is market rate by checking Glassdoor yep. or actually like talking to somebody that I know that has a higher offer that went to my same boot camp. Yeah. Like and so like if someone graduates from Career Karma and went to a certain boot camp and has a background in retail, I can show you all the companies in the Bay Area with people that have retail backgrounds mm-hmm. that went to your specific boot camps that are working in companies that can tell you the real real. 
Yep. Right. Which that's like a new <laughs> mindset as well. I mean, yeah. I just recently got kind of in trouble by a family member for talking about salaries and being very open with it. And I think that's like crucial for extremely important. Yeah. Anyone to be able to ask those questions. Like you should be able to ask your parents what they made. Yeah. How do you, I mean, I remember back in the day, I'm like, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a teacher. And then finally I'm like, mom, how much money do you make? And she told me, I was like, oh, like, <laughs> I don't know. Let me rethink this because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to college for, it seems like it'll take a while to pay that back. And like, you should be able to ask those questions. And I think just now we're getting to a more transparent marketplace where people feel comfortable doing that, where in the past that was just like a big no, no. Yeah, yeah. Like talking about salary, talking about all, all kinds of things, equity, Anything all these types of yep, things, like yep. super, super quiet thing, negotiating, like talking back, yeah. like all that type of stuff was frowned upon mm-hmm. historically. But like now I think just speaking of Glassdoor, like you look at Glassdoor, Rich Barton, mm-hmm. he started three different company, I think Glassdoor, Zillow, Expedia has this whole power to the people mantra, mm-hmm. which is like taking these industries that were traditionally yep. opaque giving data to the people and giving them power to make their best decisions. Right. And so like, I like studying not just him, but just like any model where like there's been an industry where the data and information was locked up, Mm -hmm. giving it to them and like helping them make the best decisions. It's kind of like what Amazon has done with reviews. Amazon. All that type of stuff. Yeah. yeah, Transparency is key. And there's still so many pockets, I think of information that are out there that, you know, like I was talking about with all the education data, college data, like, that's all there. Yeah. I still just don't know of a nice, you know, user-friendly place to find everything that's not super biased by yeah. like one company or one college or even like the government trying to push who knows what the heck they're exactly. trying to push on you. Like exactly. And to your point, like it's extremely important for us to stay unbiased always, right? The schools that we do have on the platform have been schools that have come to us that have de- a demonstrated history of outcomes. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to stress out whether they are going to take advantage of you yep. or not. So you can feel comfortable with that. Yeah. And that's necessary. Reducing choices, knowing Extremely. you have a trusted source to kind of say like, we vetted this program. You're yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. And like for people that don't know the way that career karma makes money and how it's, it's always free for individuals. Uh, the way that we make money is once an individual makes their own decision and they start the program, then the school pays us a fraction of their tuition. Like that's how we stay sustainable. But like mm-hmm. being unbiased and helping the individuals get to the point where when they're done with the three process, they accepted it, they get accepted into an average of three to five different programs. And then they make a choice and we help them make their best choice because when they're talking to the schools, every school is going to be saying that they're the best thing since on sliced yeah. bread. Yeah. And so like we just say, all right, cool. Like, what are your goals? What are your needs? This sounds like the best one for you. Yep. And then like you make your own choices and they make their choices. Then we get paid. And I think it's a beautiful alignment across the board. That's yeah. how we stay. Way better than, yeah, historically. Yeah. So past life before career karma. Yeah. I was just reading a bit about you booking events with people like Jay-Z and Kim Kardashian and being in the entertainment industry. Can you tell me a bit about what did life look like before career karma and what were some, you know, favorite jobs or favorite things you did before? So I, I've been playing cello since I was four years old. Uh, so that's commitment. Yes, commitment. <laughs> Shout out to mom. To we should mom. have had you bring that here. <laughs> that would have been good. Get I it on the show. It. That would have been awesome. Be our intro music for the day. That would have been really good. <laughs> yeah, next time. I know. They, they they took some of my my sound for the Masters of Scales podcast that we did, and they put it on there. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. Uh, but it was an old recording. I haven't done no fresh recordings for a podcast. We so need a fresh recording for Mission Daily. <laughs> next time. Next Drop time. in live. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Boom. I grew up in Atlanta, which is a big music city as an artist, and I'm still an artist today. I'm classically trained, so I'm not like a jazz guy. I'm not like 
even a hip hop performer, but I did um, a lot of studio musician work when I was in Atlanta, which is how I got introduced to a lot of celebrities. Around 19 years old, I used to throw organized events for uh, Jermaine Dupri's organization called Studio 72. And so we threw a lot of parties there um, during my time in college. Through that process, I met a lot of celebrities, a lot of artists, a lot of professionals. And that's also when I discovered the power of radio. During college, I also worked in radio on a classical radio station um, in Tennessee. I went to school in Tennessee, so I went to Southern Adventist University. I grew up in the church, um, and I'm still part of the church. And I'll go back and forth between Tennessee and Atlanta, Georgia. And what's interesting about radio versus podcasts, right? There's millions of people listening to podcasts, but the majority of people that listen to podcasts are rich. And the majority of people that listen to radio are poor. And it's like, still has a very large audience, even though like people say it's going to completely go away mm -hmm. uh, with television. But like, look at the content that's coming through radio and the ads that are coming through radio and the demographic that is listening and watching radio and television. And it's actually keeping them comfortably numb, right? And because I was in the entertainment world, so I was in with one demographic, but also I'm in the classical music world and I'm also in the corporate world, I was able to see both sides on how they live their day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And I realized that artists are influencers. And so like the people that I'm trying to reach and I'm trying to support, which we call like kind of like the invisible workforce or people that are overlooked, they listen to the influencers and whatever the influencers say, that's yep. what they're going to do. That's their information information source. And then like on the other side, people like have agency of their own life. Some of they are still influencers, which is either the CEOs or the VCs. Um, but the media period across the board has a lot of power, which is why you see like Google has YouTube, Facebook got Facebook Watch. There's Jeff Bezos, Washington Post. Uh, Benioff has Time. Mm -hmm. Lorraine Powell-Jobs has the Atlanta. Atlantic media is extremely, extremely powerful. And it has the power to lead people in positive or negative directions. And so I understood that from a very young age. And I wanted to be in a position where like, if I don't like, I don't believe in the whole lonely at the top thing. Mm -hmm. Like I want to make sure that during my lifetime, if I can, that every single person that I meet, if they want help, that they become greater than me. And the best way for me to reach people in a fast way is through radio, music, podcasts, video, blah, 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 right? So mastering distribution has always been something that I've been focused on since I was little. But I understood even in this world of technology and money, at the end of the day, it's about relationships. So these in-person events that we would organize were super powerful. So when I got to, to Silicon Valley, I took the same playbook that I did when I was in Atlanta. And I did the same thing. Every time we organized an event, we would take pictures and like have it uploaded the next day so people would want to post it. I would organize events with CEOs and VCs and bring in a bunch of people in tech into one room host the event, make sure the photography was great. I had a red carpet. Uh, we did it with the Black Professionals Network here in, in, in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And like we started getting a reputation for organizing events that weren't just like a typical happy hour where people are trying to say, what do you do? What do you do? And having yeah. these like transactional events, it was just more like trying to get to know you on a personal level. And the reason why you're here at the event, you know everybody's dope, mm -hmm. but you'll discover that later. We're here to get to know each other on a real level. And I'm from the South where like Southern hospitality is a very big thing and we yep. want to get to know each other for real. That's how you're going to build. That's going to be how you prevent co-founder blow up. 
me and my, my co-founders, yeah, we have our debates, but at the end of the day, like we really, really love each other. We really, really support each other because we took the time to go through that process and it is what it is. So yeah. I guess, I don't know if I fully answered your question. No, yeah, yeah, you did. How did you convince people to come to your events here in the early days before you maybe had too much to show? Good question. So the first thing that I did was, if you think about the thing that I said before about how people from certain demographics look up to different people. So if I'm trying to reach the influence, the, the community in the Bay Area in tech, who are the people that they look up to? One of my superpowers has always been to be able to reach any influencer, anybody that's historically unreachable. I've mm-hmm. always been able to establish a good relationship with yeah. them. So I'm like, all right, let me establish a relationship with them and organize an event where they're featured and everybody's going to pull up. No problem. If I want to reach local people in the Bay Area that have been around, I should probably do something with E40. I should probably do something with Mozzie or something with some local influencer that speaks to them. And then when I organize the event, it shouldn't just be a party. It has to have a theme and action items during the theme. What I realized, most of the events in tech and this period in like any industry is just like a bunch of talk about the issues, claims that they're going to do something, but zero action items. And often the talk about the themes is not related to like the people that they're talking about aren't in the room, right? So if you're talking about homelessness, there's no homeless people in the room. If you're talking about getting more veterans in tech, we might have some veterans that are currently in tech, but the veterans that are currently not in tech aren't in the room, right? So the reason why you want that is because you want to hear their perspective, perspective yeah. right? Yeah, like obviously we can you just would like think. hypothesize what yeah. we want to do to give them. We need to like talk to them. And it, it is confusing to me. I know kind of like going on a rant a little no, bit, good. but like one of the big things that YC tells us is like talk to users to understand what they want and what they need. Make something that people want. Make something that people need. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. So these same founders, when they become super successful, even on their journey becoming successful, including me, we'll talk about, all right, now let's do something for the community or let's in tandem do something for the community. But when you're in the community, the people that you're talking to are not the people. It should be, if I'm talking about getting more people in tech, I should, my my rule for myself should be, I'm never speaking at a conference unless at least half the room does not know anything about technology. Mm-hmm. Yep. That should be my mantra. That's how I'm going to spread the message. You're not going to spread the message telling the gospel to people that know the gospel already. Yep. Doesn't work. Yep. I think it also just depends why is like thinking about why are you going to a conference or why are you going to these events and stuff? I think a lot of people like going for the, you know, the flashy party, the fun and all that. But yeah, if you actually have a real goal in mind of, okay, you're saying you're solving this. Let me look into what, who's coming. Let's see if you're actually trying to solve that. And I think that can open up a lot of insight around like what they're really doing. Yeah. What if we did a town hall in the Bay area? Let's, let's identify every single person that has been evicted because of technology, listen to what they have to say and create action items about how they can actually take their city back and then organize another event and see how we did. And if what went well, what didn't go well, what we should repeat, begin doing and never do again, then we can establish new action items, celebrate what did go well. And then like keep moving forward. Like, the, yeah. like usually conferences like are the same theme but like you don't talk about what happened during the time period between the last conference. Mm-hmm. Like it has to be ongoing and, and it's a lot of work to hold someone accountable for, during a period of time. And so 
We haven't gotten into like doing a bunch of crazy events with Career Karma yet, but we will be doing events and we have done some things informally and people are, are meeting up on their own using the app because there is a search function to find people in your own city. But it's very important for us to, as we grow, always stay rooted with people. And I still do 100, 200 calls a day to understand what's going on. That's awesome. That's a lot of calls, but that's, that's awesome. <laughs> what are some of the challenges you faced with moving into a CEO role, starting a company? Yeah, what's it been like? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is like we have a primarily remote team. Um, we have six engineers, we have two designers, we have eight people on the phones and a bunch of other people and creating the systems to be able to monitor everything. We have, but even then it's super important to have like the culture is strong, everything's really good, but it's very important to make sure that as you grow, that the quality that you've established in the beginning continues yeah. at, over time. Yeah, which is hard remote. We have a lot of remote yeah. employees as it's well. Hard, <laughs> it's hard remotely. Um, I think we're in a very special time where we have things like Zoom, Airtable, Zapier, like all kinds of stuff Basecamp, that allows us. Basecamp, Asana, Slack. <laughs> yeah. I, all these things to yeah. be able to manage remote workforce. And I do think that remote work is is the future for a lot of people. But I would say one of the biggest challenges is that. I would say the biggest thing that I'm trying to work on as a leader is communication. Which Not part? Communication on podcasts like this, communication with investors, communication with my co-founders, communication with employees, communication uh, with customers, communication with governments or nonprofits. Like there's a different way to speak with different people. Mm -hmm. It's extremely important for me to be a really good listener and fully understand the situation before I respond. Which is a good lesson for almost yeah. anyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone exactly. can probably do that a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's like probably my biggest thing. This is like learning how to do that. Mm -hmm. And like, even when I'm not wrong, take the blame. <laughs> yeah. Which is like a tough thing. But I learned a lot of that through sales. Like if things are going well for sales teams, a lot of times, oh yeah, great sales team. If things are going bad, sales team sucks. Mm -hmm. So like, there's always this position that you have where like heavy is the head, right? It's mm -hmm. like, you're always going to have the finger pointed at you one way or another. And I'm comfortable being the one that gets the negative hits if necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't see it as neg negative. Problems are opportunities, right? So it's kind of like, I just think about it like, is it worth it to go deep here? I'll own it, I'll call it out. Um, and then fix it. Yeah. And it's probably, you know, it's going to sit with you less yeah. amount of time than it would maybe an employee who could stew on it for a month, two months, yeah. and then just, you know, completely degrade their what their work quality or like their mindset's changing everything. Whereas you might've been like, all right, that sucks next day over it. So. Well, like it's, it's interesting. Like I'll say the biggest revealing thing to myself running this company is like with my co-founders. It reminds me of how good of a job my parents did at raising me, right? Because like when you're taking care of a community, you really have to be mindful of like the rules mm -hmm. like or the, the codes of conduct or the guidelines and what's tolerable and what's not tolerable, right? Career karma, right? We only want positive energy. If there's negative yeah. energy, it's not going to be good. And so sometimes it feels like parenting, Right. Sometimes mm -hmm. it feels like, wow, like all these lessons that I was growing up with, like are going are, are being implemented out. So we're doing these things. So like 
shout out to parents. Yeah. So what did your parents do that really stick with you today that you're maybe using in your company? So my mom's a really good listener. She doesn't really, she asks a lot of questions. She's a psychologist. And so I never really noticed that as much growing up. And she also like, it's very hard to read her. So like, she'll like have tight lit smiles, kind of like the Mona Lisa where you're like, is she happy or not? Yeah. (laughs) And so it's kind of like, She's really good at that. And my father's like, talker, 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 talker. But he's also like extremely wise, really good questions, like very sharp points. And I think that like understanding how to communicate is something that they've raised me with. Two things that they've always taught me since I was a baby is like giving things to me that nobody could take away from me but myself, which Mm -hmm. is language of music. So for the first five years of my life, I couldn't speak English because my first language is Spanish. And if you stop practicing your language, it's gone. Same thing with the cello. If you stop playing it, it's gone. From a cello perspective, my mom chose it randomly, but it is truly my gift. And it I know it was given to me for a reason. I don't know what that reason is yet. I do feel like career karma is what we are called to do. And that's part of my purpose in life. I think what my parents did teach me is like analyze the gifts that we are all uniquely given and figure out how to develop those gifts that we're all uniquely given and figure out how to put it into this world and align it with whatever it is that you feel you are called to do. Did they help pull that out from you or did they more have you explore that on your own to figure out your gifts and what you're called to do? They would introduce me to different things. Mm -hmm. And if those things were clear that it's a gift, then they help nurture it. And I grew up in a church, like I said. So like there's a lot of things around like spiritual gifts and like burying your talents and like the importance of like not burying your talents and putting it out into the world, not being ashamed of who you are. Like if somebody calls you weird, that actually being a good thing because yeah. weird just means different. And the fact that we're all natural is that something that's not natural to everyone else. And just like doubling down on what makes you uniquely qualified to do something. And that's why I talk a lot about just like this process of reinvention. As you're going through reinventing yourself, try to think about those unique qualities about you that can be put out into this world because now that the world is getting more and more digitally connected, whatever you put out that is unique is going to be fresh and it's going to probably resonate with someone. And that community may be big and may be small. If it's a big community, that might be a business idea. Everyone is not called to be an entrepreneur. It's okay. And that's if you're okay. Not an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so from a young age, my parents had always known I was going to be an entrepreneur, but they knew that it was going to require steps, it's going to require mental training. And it was going to require discipline so I wouldn't kill myself. And when I say kill myself, I don't mean literally. Yeah, it's yeah. just like get in my own way. I was extremely rebellious when I was younger. Yeah, like same. <laughs> no rules. Like I don't follow rules. If there's a rule, I would just break it just because the rules there. Mm-hmm. Right. And your mom, meanwhile, is <laughs> just like tight lips. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I definitely got my behind whoop yeah. a few times. But um, overall, it wasn't crazy. It was just more like, you know, discipline yeah. is important. Which is good. You know? Yeah. Cool. So um, we're going to pivot now to a segment called Bet the Future. Okay. So you say, if it's going to happen within 10 years, true or false, and then why you think that. Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. AI will begin coding on its own. I think it's going to be in the middle. Okay. Because I, I do think that like AI is going, like that code is getting more and more sophisticated and there's going to be, uh, machines getting more and more sophisticated, but I don't think that's going to happen in 10 years. Computer science will be a required class that all students must take. 
I think so. This is what I think about computer science. I actually just put out a YouTube video today oh. about the difference between computer science degrees and coding boot camps. The way, let's use a music debate. I think that computer science is very theory driven versus like practical things that people need in the world and mm -hmm. what companies need in order to get work done, um, which is why you see a lot of people that graduate. The majority of people in boot camps actually have computer science degrees or actually have bachelor's degrees. Um, and so what that means is like, they're not ready for the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. And so going back to the music analogy, the way I think about it is most of the musicians that you see that are super successful aren't classically trained. They just know how to make songs that people like. Just like most developers are actually self-taught, whether it's boot camps or, or college, because the App Store has, was invented in 2008. So app developers haven't been around for more than 11 years, right? And so essentially computer science theory is important and you can learn the theory parts on the job that are super important to understand as well in addition to the practical stuff. Um, but I think what will be required is practical knowledge. Yeah, in like flipping the model. Year. Yeah, so, it'll yeah. be like Spanish. It'll be like practical knowledge with some introductions to some theory, mm -hmm. but you don't need to know all the extra deep yeah. things like what's a pentatonic scale and like what's a fifth or a seventh or like mm -hmm. major minor chords. Like you don't have to understand all of that, but yeah. you do know how to be able to like understand the difference between treble clef and bass clef and like what is a note mm -hmm. and time signatures and things like that. So there are, those are practical things that yeah. like you can read music without being good at music theory. Career karma will IPO in 10 years. It's a, it's a good question. Like we definitely want to build something that stands the test of time. And I like what long trip stock exchange is doing. Um, and I know I'm not answering true or false yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, all right. We know where you're headed yeah. based on what you say. <laughs> yeah. Like, and so like when I think about the future, um, I spend a lot of time thinking about companies that last have lasted for hundreds of years. Um, we believe that there's a fundamental difference between uh, raising money and making money and career karma is profitable and we plan on staying profitable for ever. Which is great because a lot yeah. of companies around, especially Silicon yeah. Valley, I feel like they kind of hide if their yeah. business is doing well or not with investment money. And yeah. it's pretty hard to know yeah. how things are going if you just have, you know, yeah. a big pile of cash sitting there. Yeah. So you don't actually have to optimize for profitability. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. And on the flip side, like we do have some of the greatest investors in the world that are investors here. And some of them have been on your podcast. So shout out to uh, Nathan from Unshackled who set up this interview. Oh, nice. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question. We'll I think see. that like, I think that like going public introduces a whole nother world of complexities and like holding yourselves accountable to thing, people that may not be aligned with the people yeah. in your community. And it's important for us to always help people make the most important career decisions. And so if going IPO aligns us with helping people make their most important career decisions, we'll do that. If not, then we're going to stay private forever. Seems to be the trend of a lot of people. Yeah. Career Karma acquires its first company. For sure. That's cool. Yeah, we, That'd be a crazy been, new thing to experience. We've been, Yeah. I'll just keep that quiet. Yeah. All right. All I right. I see that happening. Yeah. ISAs become a thing for all universities. And quick reminder for everyone, ISAs are income share agreements. Yeah, I could see. I, I think income share agreements are going to become table stakes for any educational institution. Um, I think that it's going to be a must. And when I say that, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to do income share agreements. Mm -hmm. I think income share agreements are not the best option for everybody. I think if you're in a position where you don't have tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars in your pocket to pay up front, then it is a good option for you. What I think that income share agreements are is a signal that shows that 
the educational institution stands by you. So if you don't have an income share agreement and if it's not at your institution in the next 10 years, you're going to have some kind of money back guarantee to show or some kind of shared risk to show that you stand by the student or the worker that's reskilling. And you're even seeing companies themselves launching their own boot camps because they need to reskill their own talent and companies building talent in addition to buying talent. So we're also going to see a lot of um, employer funded training as well. So to move into a quick lightning round to end the episode, we're going to do just, you just have to say what's on your mind Mm -hmm. as quick as I ask the question or what comes to mind. Sounds good. All right. Favorite book. The Starfish and the Spider um, and the Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations, where if you attack a spider at the head, it dies. If you cut a starfish in half, it creates two starfish. I'm a really big fan of decentralization. I would argue that career karma is more of a hybrid where like we do have squads and we have squad leaders inside of our app. I mean, we do have an executive team that gives guidelines to the community, but even though we have guidelines, each squad has its own identity, whether it's the vets who code squad or the moms who code squad or the dads who code squad, like everybody has their own identity. And what I love about things that are timeless when we're talking about things that go beyond 10 years or IPOs or whatever, it's like ideas never die. If I die, or if I leave or something happens to me, God forbid, I want people to always have a place to go to in order to do what they love and achieve their purpose as, as a collective. Favorite documentaries? One Favorite to two. documentaries. I like Jiro Dreams of Sushi. That is a good one. Yeah. yeah. It's a really good Makes me one. so hungry when yeah. I was watching yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. It's super good. Like, And it's a, it's a lot about family and discipline and routines and habits and... um peace, Mm -hmm. um, longevity. And I've watched it many, many, many times. Favorite thing to do on the weekend? Favorite thing to do on the weekend is to do something in nature, sometimes combined with a jujitsu session in the morning um, before I go out, just because that's like body chest and it like really gets me in a good mindset. If you're ever put in a, a, a dangerous position where your arm might be able to break. Like you have to like not panic and mm-hmm. think about what's the right move to prevent that from happening. And if you make that move, what's the move to the move? So I like, I like the mental exercise, but it's important for me to get out in nature every weekend. Um, it's part of the Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people, um, I keep the Sabbath. So Sunday, Friday, Sunday, Saturday is important for me to recover and reflect and focus on things that are outside of work, mm-hmm. focus on friends, focus on God, focus on what I'm grateful for. And so I do that every week. Sometimes it's not going out of nature. Sometimes it's just like going to church or staying in bed. I really like being out in the community doing something for other people. It always keeps me sensitized, but it's very easy to get desensitized as you're going on an upward trajectory. And I will I will pick a community that is overlooked and go there, whether it's like playing in a nursing home or serving food to people. It's super important for me to stay in touch. Oh, that is a good, inspiring note to end on. It's been awesome having you here. Yeah, so glad you were able to come in studio, hang out. Um, We'll definitely have to bring you back again because this was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. 
Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.